You're listening to Clever Entrepreneurship, Beyond the Boardroom, your source for practical, no-nonsense business advice from real business owners and professionals. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Eva Maria Foltz, and we're two professionals tired of flowery bullshit being presented as business advice from people who don't know what they're talking about. Together, we're on a mission to bring you real talk and real advice from expert guests who will provide educational steps to building business success. No toxic positivity and no fluff. And if you sign up for our email list, which is linked in the description, we'll send you all of the actionable steps from this episode right to your inbox. So sit back, grab a notebook, and get ready to level up your business game with clever entrepreneurship beyond the boardroom. Today, we have our very first guest. I'm very excited about it. We have Garrett Murphy. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for us? Sure. My name is Garrett Murphy. I am the owner and member manager of an LLC called Garrett Murphy Law LLC. It's a boutique law firm here in Evans, Georgia.
<laughs> Great question. So it, that 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 goes in a lot more detail. It depends on a couple things. Was it on your property? Did, were they invited to your property? Because then that makes them an invitee. When they're an invitee, you have a higher standard as a property owner to make sure that all of the latent defects or known defects, whether it be a rattlesnake home in the back, whether there's a pothole that's fallen. So take the example of, you know, you have you invite people over for the Super Bowl, somebody gets too drunk and somebody, you know, slips and breaks their neck and they end up at the house of community done. Cases like that are always going to be there, right? You can contract away some of them, but when you're inviting them into your house, they're invitee status. So or to their property. You're not, um, they include the renter in the property. So it's not your property as the previous owner mm-hmm. is um, not compliant with property. You rented it from a third party, and now assume that you do have a liability insurance on okay. your property. Yeah. So they would tend to appear as a renter. You are an LLC, right? Yeah. Right. So, I mean, yeah, there is. Number one, it would depend on the relationship between the space, the, the contract that from the, the property owner and you as the photographer, who you're going to use for that. Typically, what you see is what's called boilerplate language. Boilerplate is just generic language, okay? And a lot of these longer contracts have extremely long, sometimes unnecessary legalisms being herewith, therefore, um, you know, unto, I admittedly use some of these, um, to this day, sometimes. I feel like it's kind of expected when you go to get a longer contract and you draft it up and then you use this really fancy, I don't know, language that, you know, no one's going to budge on it. So, you know, that you bring up a good point. Some, there, I, I, there is a matter where the language of, so let me back that up. Kind of where we were earlier in, in some of the topics here. When you sign an operating agreement or you sign a set of bylaws, that's a legally binding contract between the owners of the company and the company. If I okay. tell you, um, hey, we meet at this time at six o'clock, I mean, you're technically saying I have a guarantee, and the person that is responsible doesn't respond to you guys or doesn't respond to your company. It can be, right? So, in order to have a contract, you need to have an offer acceptance and consideration so offer um i'll pay you three hundred dollars to paint my fence red okay so there's an offer and the consideration is for you painting my fence red i'll give you three hundred dollars if i don't if you don't respond or if you don't respond then there's no acceptance right sometimes there's acceptance and silence but I think that the case law is very vague on that. You typically want an affirmative acceptance. And also what's important is material terms, okay? If you're going to be 10 minutes late, I have the right to leave. It's non-refundable. I would make sure that that is in writing. Uh, I think that would be uh, – I would argue that's a material – no matter what side of the, the, the V that I would be on, I would argue that that's a material term, refundability versus so non-refundability. what about – So all of these things fall under the ability in Georgia called freedom to contract, right? So what ignorance is not an excuse to get out of a contract in Georgia. So if I put a non-refundable offer in front of you, 
that I can say on my own behalf, but uh, somebody else that works with me that if something such as this happened and they said what they think is, where like do you see how it's unfair? Absolutely. That 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 brings us to a really good legal point, right? It's called ambiguity. So one of the most important things you can do with a co- in a contract is try to make the language as clear as possible. Non-refundable if you're 10 minutes late. However, if you call 24 hours in advance and let me know, you're going to be refunded. Because what happens if it's found that a contract is ambiguous, then it falls. In other words, it lacks clarity. The term has more than one meaning. Then it can go into the court system. There's a statute that governs ambiguity and other issues in contract. And if it's ambiguous enough, it can go all the way through a court and through a, through a trial and through a jury. Because I see a lot of times when people say, you know, don't call me with a, a deposit for whatever you need because, you know, it's a fee or it's a typo or none of that was called in or whatever. Instead, if you call me with a positive state law, and there's a lot of those in, in the record on, like, what your specific wording means. But I think, like you said, if you have that, that ambiguity there where it comes down to what the intent of that is, right? Yeah, right. Right. Depending on the conversation and the contents of Which that. could equally be your words. Right. Yeah, that's right. And so, so people put so much weight on the well, words that I see. Well, like in your profession, retainer means something totally different than contract. Right. Right. If I tried to, if I tried, I would never tell somebody they should give me a non-refundable retainer because a retainer means for future services. Mm-hmm. If that service is not performed, then how can I refuse to re- like refund that? In my in my business, that would be deemed unethical. Um, if you say it's a non-refundable deposit and the terms are completely clear in the contract, it, you know, and let me say, there's no such thing as the perfect contract. There's really not because what you have is two human beings or two entities comprised of human beings trying to come together to reach an agreement. There always is room for dispute and conflict, but you want to make sure the material terms, non-refundable deposit, what does that mean? That means A through Z, clearly, and, it do, and that's... You know, and a lot of times in these material terms, when we start getting into legalese and big words, it can create ambiguity, right? So the message needs to be clear. The language needs to be short and concise. There are certain parts where there, the language needs to be, and again, what I call legalese, right? So if in, a, in an employment relationship, termination for or without cause, that's an important legal sentence. Time is of the essence. That's an important legal sentence. That basically means, you know, if that's not written into a contract, that's saying that there's no time limit. Time is of the essence means it's, it should be done as soon as possible. Or in the alternative, the photography shoot would be done in 90 days. You see it in a lot of contracts because what it does is, again, let's kind of look at the foundation of agreement. In Georgia, you have freedom to contract. Ignorance nor drunkenness is ever an excuse to get out of a contract. You can enter into a contract as long as it's not against public policy, right? As long as it's not against the wealthy elite and it's not against um, statutes, or it's not an illegal contract. Other than that, you if it's not other than those two caveats, against public policy or an illegal contract, you have freedom to contract. And what that means is the terms don't necessarily have to be perfect. If a client argues 
Jesus' death and not be comfortable with the cause of is unfair and she's not going to, he or she is not going to enter in that agreement, then that can be negotiated. You can say to this one client, all right, then the, the, the deposit will be refunded. So there's some equity on the other side when you say that. Absolutely. Also, Absolutely. Like, we see a lot of people, well, I see a lot of people always breaching the contract or delaying the contract, right? And um, at the end of the day, like, you know, word of mouth, it gets around, right? Like, if you're going to stick to the contract that this, you know, issue that you're having with this client is due to a change in my opinion, that sometimes being in question is worth more than the deposit that you want back or the promise that you made to me. Like, it doesn't, that that sort of, um, when, when you have yourself in this position, right, you can kind of afford to accommodate people in knowing that if you get into the point, like, if you say, no, I really want to keep this deposit, then you can sort of keep that as your bargaining chip, right? And it won't be a serious matter in the whole timing and measure of the deposit. So, yeah, that, that, that's that's a great point. That brings up two issues, right? A non-refundable deposit, let's say it's $500. Is somebody going to sue you for that $500 in small claims court? They certainly will. But if the contract is good, if the contract is clear, then they can't sue you because the contract was unfair because they have the right to do that. You've got to protect your case. Or, you know, you could be talking about a non-refundable deposit of $100,000. Then we start getting into, you know, deeper contracts that outline specifically what that means. But the question then becomes, did both parties understand what the word non-refundable meant? Ignorance can't be bad. The person that doesn't want to pay that non-refundable deposit has the, I would argue, obligation and certainly the right to read that contract before signing it. Do you, do you think that um, a conversation can then lead to an opportunity to ask for a rescission? And like, yes, I, I understand that. And a conversation towards any future contract. Absolutely. I, I, think, I think clarity and transparency on the front end from both parties would eliminate a lot of contractual disputes. I really do. But but are you breaching the entire contract by deposit, right? Like people don't think that. That's right. People like to think they don't. <laughs> people don't. And there is, I would argue, anytime you're doing, you know, if you're buying a ticket to a Braves game, maybe you don't need to read all the terms and conditions. And But if you're buying a car, you're buying a house, you need to know the ins and outs of it. You're, you're entering into a business with somebody. You need to know the ins and the outs of it. Because again, most important, remember, ignorance is not an excuse. Mm -hmm. You, because you have the freedom of contract, that also means you have the freedom not to enter into that contract, right? Let's say you have a photography studio and a client comes in and she doesn't, or he does not like the terms of that contract. She or he has the ability not to sign that contract and go somewhere else, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's, that's, that's vitally important. Other contracts, let's say like insurance, okay, auto insurance, home insurance, business insurance, what you get before you sign it, you need to understand not only what's covered, but perhaps more importantly, what's excluded. Now that's called a contract of adhesion, okay? That means that contract's not necessarily negotiable. Another way to say it is take it or leave it. Right. So when you when you get insurance, you can shop around with most multiple carriers. Typically, people look at it for the sake of the premiums, but they also need to understand the coverages and the exclusions. What you can't do is typically is go back to the insurance company and say, I don't like Section 43B, subsection one, and take it out. They're just going to say, take it or leave it. And that's because it's 
So both. I, I think because they, the insurance industry has so many clients that it would not be profitable to them to negotiate every contract with everybody. However, under Georgia law, the drafter of a contract, if there's a dispute in a contract, the person who did not draft the contract is viewed more favorable by the courts. So let's take a real-world example. Um, two people enter a contract. One person drafts that contract. The other person reviews it and signs it. There's a, there's a dispute in that contract. The court is going to look at the person that actually drafted that contract and say, well, there's ambiguity here. You're the one that drafted it. So it's not foolproof and ironclad, but if you go into a contract dispute, you don't necessarily want to be the one that drafted it. With insurance companies, because they're contracts that aren't necessarily negotiable, the courts look at that element, that, that, that idea of law, and they take it very, very seriously. So I go into a dispute with an insurance company. The insurance company has their contract. There's an issue of ambiguity. The courts, based on case law, typically will look more favorably towards the person that didn't draft that contract. And so that helps balance out those scales of that take-it-or-leave-it approach. And because of that, um, all the details that go into it, you mentioned the three stages that you cited. Do you recommend anybody write their own contract in order to not get into it? Well, that's a really good question. Um, at some point, somebody has to write those contracts. I would, number one, if I was entering, if I was going to give you a contract, I would not print it off online without reading it from hand to foot. I wouldn't just fill in the blanks. I would make sure that it was up to date. Typically, you can get legal counsel that can review a contract um, at a relatively low cost just to make sure there's important things in it. Like we were talking about earlier, one of the biggest issues is liability. Hold harmless, release agreement, um, indemnity agreement. What happens if this happens? What happens if X, Y, or Z happens? Um, that language can be the difference of a successful contract or not. So I, I wouldn't tell people to shy away from entering contracts because, quite frankly, having a written contract is so much more powerful than a verbal contract. And here's why. We get into a contract dispute. I say, you said you're going to paint the, the fence for $100 and you're going to paint it red. You can say no. You said it was $50. You're going to paint it white. It's just a he said, a he said, she said. So having it in writing, at the very least text messages, but certainly try to have something in writing. And if you're entering into a contract, if you're a business owner that's going to have a contract that you reuse and reuse and reuse, I would absolutely recommend that you seek competent counsel to review that. What about those that we just call like rocket lawyers and mm -hmm. stuff like that, where it is kind of like a fill in a template and they just like take it for like 50 bucks or more than that. So they provide a template for you, but you're adding or you can kind of get into that Harry Potter syndrome. You know, this is going to be it. Kind of that next one. Well, I know now that they're listed. And, you know, uh, what do you call them? Um, uh, it's more than just um, adhesion. So there's, I use contracts of adhesion. So a, a contract of adhesion is just one where it's non-negotiable, like with insurance companies. Right. So if you write it like that and you put like a rocket lawyer, you know, that it's going to have the, the legal issues in it. The legal issues. It's going to have the legal issues. It's going to look legit. And then it's going to have all of these um, 
that's that's an interesting question because let's say that that section or article is in a contract that says you have to act a certain way. Unless there's physical proof that that way was acted, how are you going to prove that? Yeah. Right? It, it, then we start getting into he said, she said. I think to your point, and I want to make sure I address this answer the question clearly, there's a lot of websites, and a lot of those websites will say this is not legal advice. You are not. And be wary of that. Um, some websites will actually get you in contact with lawyers. I think the fake, for me personally, maybe a little bit more of a traditional view, but I believe if you speak to somebody face-to-face, going back to something I stated earlier, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Let's absolutely break down the business. Let's break down the adults. Let's put in language that, that may be fair, but also pr- that may lean a little bit towards one way. What are your goals, right? I, I, I don't want to be taken advantage of. I don't want clients show, um, showing up an hour late. I want... paid up front. I want 50% paid on the back end. All right, what does that look like in an unambiguous way? What does that look like? What is language that has been tried and true through Georgia case law that says that, no, this is not unambiguous? In other words, this is clear language. This this passes the test. So the tenant can be perceived as when somebody has a contract, they should have Absolutely, yeah. If you're gonna, especially from a business standpoint, um, I've seen a lot of them, and there, and a lot of them are very good. Um, they're very good for maybe generic things that don't have a lot of, don't have a lot of meat on the bone, right? But if you're gonna have a contract that's gonna be your client engagement contract, time and time and time again, it's absolutely worth it to have a competent attorney, if not draft it, at the very least review it. No, I don't, and, and, it's, and it's it's because repetition and experience. You see so many good contracts, but also in our line of work, you know, people don't come to me and say, hey, I wrote this really good contract. I want you to review it. It's typically, I'm in this contract dispute. Yeah. Here's a contractual issue. They're way too late. They're way too late, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so many contractual issues that you see a lot in court. Well, I'll tell you what I see, and let me remind you, too. When you enter into an LLC or you enter into uh, a corporation, when you sign the bylaws or you sign the operating agreement, you're entering into a legally binding contract at that point. Here's one of the biggest issues I see with business, and it's not necessarily with clients or customers. It's within the business itself. It's called unanimous consent, right? So if you think about it, when you start a business, and, and it's just take there's two people. Two people start a business. They typically share the same dream, the same vision. They talk about it. They're excited. They, they've thought about it. And now it's ready to move forward. The business is ready to open. Okay? They will print off an operating agreement online or decide that all decisions are just going to be made unanimously. Right? So in order for us to make big decisions, we have to get unanimous vote. Both, both members have to agree to it uh, or that action can't happen. That sounds good up front, but as the business grows, as it hits a rough patch, one of the biggest mistakes I see are businesses not having another alternative to unanimous consent, right? It can create a roadblock, especially when you start, when the membership interest changes from 50-50 to 60-40 or 70-30 or 80-20, or you're looking to have outside investors come in, unanimous consent can be cumbersome. 
it can be a deal killer. A lot of people may look at it, potential outside investors, and say, you need unanimous consent. That doesn't make sense to me. That's one of the biggest issues I see, right? And I can I can relate to this as a small business owner. When I started my law practice, and still am very excited about moving forward in the way things look and the directions for the future. But when you start a business, put it this way: I've never seen anybody say, "I can't stand this person, so I'm going to start a business." Right? It's not till down the line where they hit this dispute and they can't agree on something that these issues really arise. I, from the business context, that's probably the biggest. Absolutely. There's a couple ways to do this. You can either have it written written in your operating agreement or your bylaws if you're an entity, but have a buy-sell provision. Have a right of first refusal provision. Basically, in the event somebody dies, does the surviving spouse or do the kids get it, or does the company have the opportunity within 30 days, 60 days to, to buy the deceased member's shares? Um, in the event unanimous a unanimous decision can't uh, be reached. Is there a mediation? Is there an arbitration provision? Do we seek counsel from an independent advisor who's knowledgeable in that business? Always have caveats. Caveats the wrong word. Always have alternatives when you're looking at something as, as, as stringent. I mean, if you think about it, business decisions can't move forward if there's agreement. Okay. So have a have a, an agreed upon So, and, and I'll touch on a couple topics if that's okay with that. For so, it's called for an LLC. It's called a sole member. You're the only member of that LLC, and that is completely fine. That is totally fine. I'll tell you, Garrett Murphy Law is a sole member LLC. But what's most important here is that there's a there's an operating agreement that's in place and it's signed. Because when we're talking about liability protection, let's say you're sued in a lawsuit. How can they get through to your personal assets if, let's say, there's insurance that's not paid or the damages, the amount of money they're suing for is greater than the insurance? They're going to do what's called piercing the corporate veil. They're going to try to prove that your business, your sole member LLC, is just the alter ego of you acting individually. So if you have a sole member LLC, I cannot stress it enough. Make sure you have a signed operating agreement. That's number one. Now, for all entities, make sure that your bank account is separate. The business bank account is separate from personal bank accounts. Don't commingle funds. In other words, don't pay your family's mortgage or your power bill out of the business account. Make sure they're totally separate. Okay. Um, don't fraudulently transfer property. That's another big one. If you think you're about to be sued and you fraudulently transfer a person property to a third party, those are really three big ways that that um, a plaintiff or somebody suing you can pierce through the corporate veil and go after personal assets. Again, very, very important. Have the operating agreement in place and abide by that operating agreement. Also, obviously, you heard me say a lot of people think when they have questions on life insurance, they think, oh, you have a business in here. Like, I don't have, you know, a huge real business asset or I need, you know, less than $50,000 a year or whatever. That's like, right. So can can you say like because it does happen to small businesses? Absolutely. Let's just give some worst case scenario. Um, small business owner, you own a 
corner store that sells cakes or you know it's you 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 have a you, you have a brick and mortar shop that's a small space um and their revenues you know one thing revenues don't necessarily matter when you're doing sales so somebody comes in and, and it happens to be raining that day and somebody slips on the floor and has a major injury even if you're your third day in business and you don't have any revenue then that's still an extreme lawsuit you need insurance you need to have that LLC protection because let me tell you if your business does not have the revenues or does not have the income or does not have the profit they're going to try to find a way to number one get insurance and number two go after your personal assets so I would argue it does not matter what size you are you need to make sure that you have your corporate documents in place So let me let me put on my plaintiff's attorney hat. If I went through a lawsuit and I noticed that the business was making no money, the business owner's personal assets were worth millions and millions and millions of dollars, then it would get a light to go off in my head to say, all right, perhaps they are just using this as a shell company to protect them from from liability for these personal assets. If you have your corporate governance documents intact and you abide by them for an LLC and operating agreement, abide by what the operating agreement says, your funds are not commingled, you haven't transferred property fraudulently. These are kind of the big three. You make sure you do these things and you're operating in good faith and in sound business judgment, then your your assets should be protected. It doesn't matter how small or how big. What are your People who are qualified or qualified enough to be operators legally, but I see a mass, like, kind of unrefined office. The only refinement that you have here is one slightly information that was left unprotected. Mm -hmm. And they're giving out legal and business advice and reminders. Um, they can almost, like, send them sounds on, you know, Instagram and stuff to try to get you to refer as many people as they can. And ultimately, you know, it's not, it's not really hurting So, you know, social media, love it or hate it, um, seems to be here to stay and is a large marketing presence for probably all types of businesses. Um, I will not, I'll be the first person to say I am not a social media guru. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, it's, you know, I see stuff. It's amazing. I don't do a lot of social media, but I'll get how to make a lot of money estate planning, how, you know, here's all these leads um, and you click on it and they hook you in, but then you go to some website that has terms and conditions that has all the necessary disclaimers on it. I would be cautious and make sure you do your due diligence before just jumping on the bandwagon. Do you think it's like a listing you know, good price thing type of doing something like that? Aside from you know, big social media followers, like what if somebody had no business? Would that be a better thing to get them to go through this process? Social proof. I would say, number one for me as a consumer and then also as an attorney, 
If something's too good to be true, it's usually is. But they're not going to make you a millionaire. They're not going to make you. They're, they're not going to make you a millionaire. That's the new thing. I think it's um, you know, it, it's um, self-employed thing. You don't need a millionaire. You can do it on a supervised base, and and you know, hand tested, and you know, don't worry about the statistics. And like, people believe this though. Like, the, they do. They do. What, So, could they, yes, um, it would be enough for them, right? So, you can get into criminal and civil trouble for holding yourself out to be somebody you're not. Let, let me give you a prime example, contracting. We know there's a lot of fly-by-night contracting, unfortunately, in this area, and we see it a lot. People that hold themselves out to be certain things. Same thing with attorneys. Same thing with doctors. That's more on the criminal side. But mo- these, these people on social media that... I promise to sell you, you'll make a million dollars. Or if you follow these easy, these three easy steps to freedom and, you know, here's how I became a millionaire. I think what they're doing is skirting the line from offering you what's legal advice or real estate brokerage advice um, or medical advice and just saying, hey, here's how I do it. Remember that concept we talked about, freedom to contract, and ignorance is not an excuse. It is up to the average human being to... Make sure they understand all the facts. Now, if somebody, you hear a lot, this, you know, don't, I don't want to go on a tangent here, but you hear a lot about elder abuse, right? People calling the elder and saying, with $500, you'll get this. Oh, yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same thing. These can be scams. Um, so they're not necessarily holding themselves out as financial advisors or real estate brokers or attorneys or doctors. They're just saying, hey, here's how I did it. I'll show you how I did it. question in practical in practical terms becomes how much time are you going to invest right so right you're you you somebody online says you pay a thousand dollars me and i'll teach you how to be a millionaire in you know 90 days so you pay that thousand dollars and they hold themselves out right are you going to file a lawsuit for that one thousand dollars well right. chances are they're they're preying on people who are not necessarily that's exactly right that's so exactly they, they right kind of Like you should be able to blame them, right? Like 
I mean, I think it depends on who they're what, what they're trying to hold themselves as, right? Financial advisors, real estate brokers, lawyers, doctors. Um, do you all need licenses? You have to pass certain tests to hold yourself out. The question would be more specific and customized. What are they holding themselves as, right? And that. Yeah, and if you're an employee, an employee, there's no license required to be an employee. But if you if you know that you have the power of influence, right? Like if you know and you and you can teach others to see how to take policies, wouldn't you have to be held liable at some point for how you enact the advice that you give? You can re you can start getting into consumer law. You can start getting into you know. Fair. So so there is a way. There, it's just there is a way. It's just yeah. It's a trend. It's a lot of people, you know, for 199 that you can buy a book. You can write a book. I can write a book. You know, you can write a book on, on finding your peace or prosperity or how to be a millionaire. That doesn't mean you're you're holding yourself out as a financial advisor that's regulated under the Securities Act. Sure, if somebody calls you a millionaire and they want to become a millionaire, you should not be false to them. So I would, the harsh truth I would say is trust, right? Um, it's your job. Ignorance cannot be contracted out. If you choose to follow somebody that has a million followers that's constantly on Instagram, riding around in Ferraris and smoking cigars and doing all that, and but they're not saying they're you're not retaining them to be your financial advisor, then you kind of have to. You can't play the ignorance role. It is. No, it is. I see it all the time. Because there's a lot of people that choose to go into that, and the people get them into a really bad place. And so it is It is harmful, even if, to a degree, it's legal. Uh, there is a separation there. I know we're talking about legal stuff here, but there is something that can be harmful and probably shouldn't be allowed, even if they don't really break yeah, the law. It's such a new kind of phenomenon, though, that maybe your movement isn't isn't exposed to as much as it because it's like it caught up to it. How many times a day would you say you get spam callers trying to sell you something? All the time. Trying to illegally put yeah. this. Oh, yeah. I've had I mean, this is becoming like, commonplace in society. Yeah, it has very much. You know? And, 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 and you can, like, you know, go through the FTC's website and you can go on all their periodic call lists, but they call them whether it's like, hey, they're not giving you enough pay passwords and they're giving money to the top internet safe, like a whole other thing. That's right. How does that better? Your, how does that better your life? Right? You know what I mean. Like not, maybe people are fathoming that. It's it's crazy. Yeah. Like it's nothing can be done with it right now on the states, but it means that you have to do your due diligence, due like due you diligence. said. So if I were to go to 
it's got to be responsibility, right? So your financial, your financial planner, number one, they deal in markets. They they deal with your financial planning, but they deal in markets that all the time. They're going after you, right? If you ask them, that's like if you came to me and said, "What's your legal advice about this SEC guru?" I'd say, "I don't have any legal advice." Right? Or, or S- SEO, SEO guru. You can tell how technical, but you can tell we're in the south of the state. But I wouldn't have legal advice. I don't. Don't know anything about it. And not to say Clearly. that because there are a lot of people <laughs> who would be like, I don't know what Jason Kelly does. And you're like, really? Being in your office, I'll tell you what I think. And you all find a way and it's still you. Yeah. So it's kind of, I think it can happen in either way. I think it's something that's been happening for a long time before anybody was able to get this app. But now that you see it, it's just like landing in our faces mm-hmm. all the time that now it's especially hard to get away from what you guys are doing. I can go see what you guys have done, do your own research. But then, like we were talking about with, you know, contractors and talking LLCs, even when you go through a homemaker, you're going to get some form of deposit. So three to five grand is the goal for companies. You have to be good. You have to make sure you're good. You have to, so it's like, how do yeah. you know? It's really hard to discern now what's credible and what's not Which credible. Which makes so easy to kind of fake it. With social media now, everybody can be an expert and yeah. hide behind. And that's kind of why we even started with this is because we were really tired of seeing people who don't know what they're talking about influence people to do things when, sure, maybe it'll work out for them or maybe it won't, but what are your qualifications to even advise? It doesn't mean that you need to have a degree in law or that you don't need to be a lawyer to be an attorney or a CPA, but hearing from their, like, certainly feels a lot um, a lot better if you're going to hear um, the flip side of what can happen if you don't because, you know, that lawyer might be the lawyer that you need to see to get that done right after. So, I nobody's going to listen to this who who doesn't want to be better but people are here because they want to be better and they have an interview and they want to help some of the best choices you can make as an individual entering into a contract as individuals forming a business or business anything to do with contracts remember forming a business if you're entering into a contract have those tough conversations up front transparency clarity uh, negotiation prior to entering into the contract. These things, if they would have been done early on, will would have settled so many disputes without needing to litigate, without filling up the courts with, with these civil issues. Some of them can. Some of them can. Negligence in the work performed. That sort of thing, that that's typically going to be a contractual dispute. But be transparent. You know, if you if you're a business owner and there's something with you that's non-negotiable, let's say that non-negotiable item is if somebody's an hour late, then their refund, then their they have a, the deposit they made is non-refundable. If if in your business that is a non-negotiable for you that you want less money, let them know that early on. Have that conversation with them. Make sure they read page one of the contract that discusses that non-refundable. Because not only as an attorney, but but as a husband, as a father, as a consumer, that means a lot to me because you're not trying to hide the ball. Mm-hmm. Have those have those conversations with people. They could be awkward, but I think typically what you'll see, you'll see a sense of empowerment in your business because you're not getting walked on. Here's something that's important. My time is valuable. I'm not going to wait around an hour. And we're just using this as a hypothetical. Hypothetical. Not only will you be empowered in your business, 
but you'll also be pleasantly surprised by the responses that you get. Put it in writing. Always put it in writing. Have the conversation. Whether you're entering into a business with somebody or you're entering into a contract for a service or a product, have the conversation early on about what the contract says. Keep yourself open as a business owner to have that conversation. Remove the awkward. And I would certainly say if you have a contract that you're going to use time and time again, have a competent legal professional take a look at that. Have a lawyer take a look at that. Sure. Yeah, I had a unique history, I think. I was a financial advisor for uh, approximately 12 years prior to becoming an attorney. So I do estate planning, but I also do litigation. Uh, on the litigation side, I do a lot of contract work, a lot of business formation, business dispute, also negligence, medical malpractice, vehicle wrecks. I, I, I pride myself on my practice being a boutique law firm. It's not necessarily volume. It's not quantity over quality. Customer service is number one in our business, uh, in my practice. Um, so if anybody ever has any questions, or um, always feel free to reach out. The website is www.garrettmurphylaw.com. While we aim to provide you with practical and knowledgeable advice, it's important to do your own research and consult with a professional before making any decisions that could impact your business. The information we provide is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, financial, or any other professional advice. And with that, we want to thank you for tuning in to Clever Entrepreneurship Beyond the Boardroom. Until next time, keep building and growing your business.